Hey everyone, welcome back to Casual Watch Talk. Well, this week I've got a special guest on and it's a member of our Facebook group. So I'd like to welcome Sunil to the show. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you, Sam. Been a long time fan of the show, so I appreciate you having me on. Well, I think we've got quite a fascinating story. It was certainly one that I've been following over on the Facebook group and I think this will be very interesting. Certainly intrigued me to do a podcast I think this will this will turn out to be quite an interesting show but essentially you've over over a number of years you built a watch collection of arguably some of the most desirable watches I would say certainly and that certainly ones that I'm drawn to and then sort of as as it drew a close last year you decided to to sell the collection so this this is the story but before we get into that I'd love to know like how you got into watch collecting? Yeah, no, well, it's thank you, Sam. It's a, it's an interesting um, it's an interesting one. I think a lot of people get into watches, you know, through their through their parents, and I'm certainly no different. I actually got into watches not through my father, but through my mother. She was always the one that was into watches in our uh, in our family. So I, I recall when I was younger and I was a child, we used to. Um, go overseas every couple of years for for conferences that dad had to attend and so every couple of years we would go on a conference and um but mum would use that opportunity to buy herself a watch and she was the sort of person that would never spend any money on herself the rest of the time but every couple of years her indulgence was a new watch and um and for some reason that that experience always always stuck with me so you know, it was a obviously back in those days. I, I you know grew up in the seventies and eighties, but during the eighties, you went into a into a dealership. You had the experience. You you know, I sort remember they were brought champagne, they were brought coffee, they were brought tea, they were hors d'oeuvres served. It was that type of experience, and I for some reason it just always stuck with me. And I always remember. I thought, you know what, I, one day I want to have an experience like that, and I want to buy a watch. And so it was that really that, that got me into it from a uh, from a relatively early age. At that time, what what did your your mum's collection consist of? Mostly Omega. She was a she was actually a big Omega fan. So I do recall she had a couple of Omega Devilles. Like I can't remember the name of the other one that she had, but look, she, at that time she really did stick to traditional women's. Uh, women's watches so there was a lot of gold there was a lot of two-tone there was a couple of diamond pieces thrown in there for special occasions but it was a uh, yeah it was it was very very omega centric and and what about your dad was he was he interested at all or was it really look uh, yeah he, he was probably he was interested I do recall he had a couple of omegas but that was more so at mum's urging um but he was a surgeon so he didn't get a lot of time to actually wear a watch so I think so for him, he was um, he was more sort of functional than anything else. So I I do recall he had a, a Longines, and I think the biggest sort of extravagance for him was I think he's bought a Bomb and Mercier once back in the you know the in the nineties when I think they were probably a little bit more regarded than they than they potentially are now. Yeah, that's a brand that you you occasionally see pop up online, don't you? But I don't know. I don't think I know anybody that actually owns one. So on your journey, then, can you remember what? what your first watch was and when you had it yeah I can actually my, my first watch was after I got my first proper job I would say back in the, after I finished university and uh, you know did a few other things and then I thought I'd better get myself a job and and landed in the workforce and, and I remember after the first probably month monthly paycheck I thought you know what I'm going to buy myself a watch so I went into a 
into an authorized dealer and bought myself a Longines. So that was my my very first watch. It was a, and I was actually prior to this, I was trying to look up the, the model, but I can't seem to find it. It was a Longines quartz that came out in the late 90s. I think it was 1999, um, which is what I was trying to find. But that was my very first, very first sort of luxury watch per se. Um, and my next one after that, interestingly, you mentioned Bomb and Mercier, was actually two Bomb and Merciers. So I actually took a bit of a leaf out of dad's Bomb and Mercier and I went and bought myself two of them. So that was, that was my next sort of indulgence for want of a better term. My first luxury watch I spoke about it on the show before was a, I always wore the Timexes. I think I even had like a diesel fashion watch that I wore for a long time. But my first luxury watch I bought was an Omega Speedmaster. And I was quite content with that for the following 10 years. I wouldn't say I was a watch collector at all, but was that the same as you? Or did once you got that long jeans, did you have the bug straight away? No, I think it did take me a little bit of time. I think at that point, I really did still view watches as, an, as a real indulgence. And so it took me a few years to, you know, to move on to the Bomb and Merciers. I think I had a couple of, you know, there was a Timex in there. There was a couple of swatches along the way. But in terms of spending what I would term serious money on a watch at that time, it did take me a while to do because I thought I'll get myself set up. I'll, you know, get an investment property and start to, you know, start to actually live the life of an adult before I, before I go down the path of, of some indulgences. So that's, that's really where I did, uh, where I did sort of find myself on that journey. Can you remember where you went after the Bomb and Mercier? Yeah, after the Bomb and Mercier, I went to... I had a couple of Omegas actually, because once again, based on based on my mother's uh, experience with Omega, my first watch after that was it was a Seamaster, um, and I had a I had a, a couple of uh, quartz Seamasters after um, after the Bond films. So I was uh, I was a big uh, a big Bond fan growing up. So I really one of the first films I ever saw was a Bond film. So I always had that association, and then I remember when Bond. I think it was Pierce Brosnan was wearing the um, wearing the Omega Seamaster, the quartz version. I remember getting myself one of those, and and I actually the first watches after that, the next three were actually Omegas. I, I know everybody loves Sean, and I like Sean Connery's Bond, but I think Pierce Brosnan was when I was really getting into James Bond, and I, I for for me, he kind of epitomised what my idea of James Bond was, and I think it was such a great move by Omega at that time after the after um, we'd had sort of series of Seikos with Roger Moore and then they really, and it became such an icon that uh, Seamaster, uh, I think those, I feel like those Quartz ones are having a bit of a resurgence or I, I certainly would like them to. I think some of those well, high well, precision Quartz. I think they are too, Sam. I mean, I actually re-bought one of those, one of those Quartz um, pieces last year. I do, you know, I remember because I, and I remember from the film, there was a, I think there was a laser that came out of the, um, yeah, out Golden of, the, out of yeah. the bezel, wasn't it? And that was, I remember that was very, very cool. So hence, hence my sort of interest in the, uh, in the Seamaster. So following the, the Seamasters, you then built this, what is quite an incredible collection. And I'm so interested to ask you about your experience on certain models. So by the time you got to the point where, we'll get to in a bit where you decided to to move on a lot of these watches by that time you'd had a lot of the main brands so i'd love to ask you about them well first of all let's start with with rolex because you seem to have quite a, 
a number of Rolexes at the time, some very desirable ones, uh, a vintage Pepsi, uh, modern GMTs, you had a OP. So what what was your view on Rolex at that time when you started? Well, no, that, that's a, it's an interesting one because I think over the, the relatively short time I've been collecting since about 2017 properly onwards, um, I've really, I really sort of jumped in initially into Rolex as my first, I suppose, high, high end, you know, purchase. And I think I bought my first Rolex only in 2018. Um, so that was actually the watch I'm wearing now, which is the white OP39. So that's the, um, the original. And that was my very first Rolex that I, that I purchased there. And I bought that. I had a, a good year at work and I, I thought I'd sort of treat myself and reward myself with that. And, and that was actually my first experience of the, of the brand. And it was an interesting one because at that time, I remember buying that watch from an AD out of the window. They had a white dial and a black dial, both sitting in the window. And they said, which one would you like? I'd never purchased from that AD before. So I had no purchase history, no nothing. They just said, which one would you like? And I said, well, and then before I could answer, they said, do you mind taking the white dial? We can't seem to get rid of it. So we'll give you a discount to take the white dial. Wow. So at that time, I thought, oh, well, it added incentive. And, um, and I took the white dial. Little did I know that a couple of years later, it would um, be discontinued. And then obviously, we've seen what the, uh, what the prices have done for that model, but also for others. But I, what I did like about Rolex, and I certainly wouldn't call myself a Rolex sort of you know, fanboy or anything, but I really like their, their functionality. I find them very, very, very utilitarian. I find them very functional, very legible, and just a very easy watch to be, to be able to wear. And I think for me, that's actually how I still see Rolex, despite where the prices have got to and where I think you know, some of the models are you know, on the secondary market. I still find them very functional. It's a workhorse movement. It's a closed case back. They're relatively simple in terms of design. Yes, there are some obviously precious metal, uh, you know, metal models, but fundamentally, I still personally view it as a tool watch. And for me, that's that's where my sort of interest in Rolex has remained. You make such a fascinating point there, and I was talking about this with uh, Mike France at Christopher Ward last week where Christopher Ward's got a couple of goals and one of which is to create a comparable bracelet to Rolex which I think with all of the hype around Rolex and a lot of these YouTube shows they don't focus on in fact how the Rolex have execute the simplicity of design so well like the, how light the bracelets are yet still functional and it just seems to be almost incredible amount of detail that's that, that seems to be lost about just how functional they are or how much of a tool watch to your point i think also the way i looked at rolex as well the the models that i did pick up over the over the past few years were models that i i was genuinely interested in and i think for me i used the last few years and covid to be fair has played a large part during that i was very fortunate that my work wasn't impacted during covid but because we couldn't travel as much, I sort of indulged the passion for watches a little bit. So I really used the last few years as an opportunity to, to buy pieces, to really understand what I like, what I don't like, and where I sort of want to see my future collection going. And so for me, it's really been a learning experience the last few years, and that's what I've used it for. And whilst I've moved on the majority of those, of those pieces, 
I have actually got something out of each one of those for the reason that it's helped me refine what I do like, where I want to go to and, and what I want that collection to be moving forward. I share a lot of this sentiment with you as well. And I don't know whether I, I get it across properly on the podcast because I do talk about how I've bought and sell, sold quite a few watches you know my speedmaster that I had and tudors and stuff like that but i see each one as a learning experience as well where i don't necessarily have to i've i've learned from the watch and i don't necessarily have to keep it anymore so i think that i'm i'm a similar in the collection mindset as well which i i, I suppose is one different side of it and i respect people that can that can collect you know specific watches or or have, have like a theme to their collection i'm just i i'm learn from each piece as well from your from the Rolex OP, you then got some. I would argue some of the most desirable Rolexes in the current market. You got you had a and you had a vintage one as well. You had a vintage Pepsi. I did have a vintage Pepsi. I'm just I, look. I I've always I've always liked the GMT in terms of outside of the OP. The GMT was always my my favorite Rolex model, and so for me, I always wanted to add. You know, add a GMT into the collection, so that was always going to be, you know, the first on my the first on my list. And I think the one that I liked was actually the vintage GMT. I liked the older the older style, so I actually got a GMT Master, not a GMT Master Two. I liked, you know, I liked that it was the sixteen. Um, I'm not very good with reference numbers. I have to come sixteen seven hundred. I think it was one six seven hundred, which was the one that I that I really liked and. And I and I really did like that watch, and I think you know I tried the I was fortunate enough to have that, and I did you know pick up a Pepsi and the um the Pepsi the Batman and the Black Dial GMT. So I did have a at one point you know to your point about people collecting specific things for a brief period there, I think I wanted to go down the path of I want to have all the GMTs, and so I was very fortunate to have those three pieces the black dial remains my favorite um or the black bezel sorry remains my favorite i'm not sure whether that one has a uh, has a nickname i didn't i certainly didn't give it one but i don't believe it did but that was probably my favorite of the um of the three and i think i really liked the the way that rolex executed the um the gmt model from a, in terms of the fit and i'm not sure whether you've seen you know some of the the way that they fit on my wrist personally I think that's what I really liked about it. They were the, they were a wonderful fit. Once again, a workhorse movement, just a beautifully executed watch from a tool watch perspective. And that's always my caveat when I talk about Rolex. I always say for for what you get at the retail price, I think you're getting a very, very good functional utilitarian watch. Most of your collection consisted of quite modern watches, didn't it? Or at least new or new within the within a couple of year period so what was the difference or why did you go for a, a vintage pepsi and did you find that there was much of a difference between the the gmt2 modern ones and the vintage ones and which did you prefer i preferred the aluminium bezel over the ceramic bezel i i found that it had a warmth to it whilst the whilst the ceramic bezels are obviously very shiny um and they and they're obviously more scratch resistant I found the aluminium bezel really did have a lot of character. I found the way that it um, the way that it faded over the over the time um, really yeah really was something that I I found much more compelling in terms of the look of the watch. We talked about how you managed to walk into the AD and buy this OP, which see two thousand and eight 
I think if it was any other period, you wouldn't think that that was a long time period between where we are now. But obviously, the whole world changed within that period. So dramatically, you, yep. Yeah, incredible, isn't it? Really. But so you walked in and bought the OP, but I'm I'm guessing you didn't walk in and buy the Batman and no. the, the the I think you had a Submariner as well, a date Submariner. Mm. Yep. No, and I think and the reason I didn't also I I have been offered one of those watches, but I haven't bought them from the AD because I was able in Australia, we've got a very good sort of network of Facebook groups for watches. And I think one of the things, and I'm not sure what it's like in other parts of the world, but I've been very fortunate to make some very good friends through some of these, some of these watch groups and watch networks where we are able to, you know, buy, buy and sell between us. And I think what that's also allowed me to do is, is buy a few of these pieces and try them and then move them on within that group as well. So I think that's been, that's been good. And what that's allowed me to do is not to be, not to fall into the, um, you know, the crazy secondary market sort of pricing that we do, that we do sort of see, um, you know, globally, especially for Rolex and, and Patek, not that I've, not that I've been down that path with Patek at all, but, uh, but certainly with Rolex. And I think for me, I've been able to buy a lot of those watches through a variety of forums. So those groups, I have bought a couple of Chrono 24. I haven't purchased any watches off eBay as yet, but certainly Chrono 24 and the variety of Facebook sort of watch specific groups that we have here in Australia have really been a, a great sort of resource to, to learn about some of these pieces, but then also pick them up and then also to be able to move them on. I'd love to get your opinion on this. So the you obviously bought these Rolexes over the last sort of four or five years, and that is when the market has really turned. Do you do you still think that Rolex on the secondary market is not necessarily good value, but it, it, do you think it's still an accessible entry point for somebody that wants to get into it now, or do you think that it's it's moved beyond that? That's a really that's an interesting question, Sam, and I think I I think I look at it in two ways. The first way is to say it depends on what else you want to buy. So let's say someone wants to buy a Submariner, as an example. If they were to go into an authorised dealer, they would probably need to pick up one, two, possibly three other watches before they're going to be allowed to purchase a Submariner through that dealer. So in effect, they would have had to spend a certain amount of money to be able to get to that point. Is that the amount of money that you will add on to the retail cost of a Submariner to buy one on the secondary market? So I suppose it depends on how you're going to assess the value of that watch. Personally, I don't. And the reason I say that is I think if I'm looking at the Submariner, which in Australian dollars is a, a 10 to 11K watch, if I'm paying 20 to 25,000 Australian dollars for a Submariner, I'm not getting a $25,000 watch. I'm getting a $11,000 watch for that. If I'm spending $25,000, I would much rather buy a $25,000 watch. And so that's the view that I personally take. Not everyone shares that view. And that's why I think I use that caveat as the first point being it depends on, you know, if you want the Submariner to be your one watch, you're most likely not going to be able to get access to one in the current market at retail. So more than likely, your only option is to pay the premium, but that will also then save you having to buy three or four other watches that you may not want. After Rolex, I noticed that you, there's a couple of other brands that we'll talk about, but you also had quite a, a 
good collection of the Tudor Black Bays. So h- how did that come about? I, I actually, this is going to sound like a bit of a strange one, but I actually traded one of my uh, GMTs for a collection of Tudor Black Bays. So that's how that, that came about. Oh, so wow. that's, yeah, so I moved on the, um, the Batman and I was able to pick up three different Tudors. In, in under the GMT banner. So the way I looked at the buying and the selling um, piece of this, and, and I suppose I want to clarify this, I've sold a number of these watches for a loss um, because I haven't used this as a money-making exercise. This has been really for me to, to explore different pieces, work out what I like. And, you know, I've, I've been happy to take a loss on some of these watches for the reason that I'm doing it for the perspective of my own watch experiences and watch journey. So I just wanted to make that, you know, make that point. I think it's important to sort of clarify the difference, you know, there. Uh, but so, yes, yeah, so I was able to move on one of my GMTs. I was able to pick up these Tudors because I, one of my favourite watches in my collection that I, I must confess I do regret moving on was my Tudor Pelagos. I had a Pelagos LHD, which I, which I did, um, which I did actually trade quite a while ago, and I always liked once again the functionality of that watch, the robustness of that watch. I thought it was just a really, a really well made, really well executed dive watch, and for me, I just thought, you know, I really wanted to experience more of what what Tudor was doing. I don't think it was it's. It's very unfair to continue to call, you know, Tudor Rolexes, you know, little brother or whatever, because I really do think they're putting out some really interesting, unique standalone pieces. The 925 Silver, the, the bronze watch that they put out, they're really taking their own path and really, you know, shaping their own path. And I think that they're doing that in a really interesting way. And I'd never owned a bronze watch before. I'd never owned a silver watch before. So I really wanted to experience what those watches felt like on the wrist what those watches look like in person and to be able to experience how they you know how they actually wore and I think that's a really important part you know for me is how watches wear when you've actually got them on the wrist you can look at you know a number of macro shots on a on a review or a website or a or a YouTube video but until you've actually got it on the wrist I think that's the only way to really determine whether a watch is is for you. I'm heartened by the fact that you said that some of, a lot of these watches you sold at a loss because I'm very similar. I, I'd, you hear of the, all these watch flippers, but the only one I think I ever, I, I ever increased in value was my Speedmaster when I sold it. But I, I did hold, I did have it for twelve years. So uh, interesting, actually, about the the Black Bay Fifty Eight that you're talking about. You had both the bronze and the silver versions. How did you, I think for anybody that's interested in those that's perhaps not seen them, how did you find that those wore and also did they tarnish or how did you, how did the metal kind of evolve as you owned it or did it or if Tudor, did you think Tudor have cracked it in terms of the? I found that the bronze did tarnish um, even after, because in Australia, obviously it's in summer, especially it's quite hot. And I did find that, um, you know, when you do sweat more in summer and I did actually find that the, uh, the bronze did patina quite quickly, but it was quite an even patina. I certainly wouldn't say that it looked, you know, discoloured across the board. It was actually quite an even patina over the inside of the band and the underside of the case. Uh, the 925, the 925 didn't. It was a, it had a really interesting shimmer to it. One that I, I hadn't really picked up in, um, 
in, in pictures or in videos, but when you look at it, it, the way it catches the light is really quite interesting. And the, the mushroom the mushroom slash talk dial on that is really something quite special. That it's actually, I personally found that the visually the most appealing watch of the Tudor range that I've, that I've managed to experience. It, it really is a special watch. And, and then another question as well about this is, you, you owned both the 58 and the original Black Bay. So is there, are there any differences between the two if, you, if you're perhaps shopping for that model and you, you perhaps haven't seen them and you're trying to make a decision? Obviously, there's a size difference, but w- w- did you have any preference or h- how did you find that they wore? For me personally, I liked the, the 58. Um, I find the thickness of the original Black Bay, it, it really is quite a, it's quite a solid hunk of metal on the, on the wrist. And I think unless you get an exact fit, and once again, this is why I think it's important to try these things on because everyone, and it's not just about the circumference of your wrist, it's about the shape of your wrist as well. And, and I think for me personally, I've got, I've got a seven and a half inch wrist, but it's quite flat on the top. So what I found was the original Black Bay sat quite high, whereas the Black Bay 58 wrapped around a little bit better. So once again, that would be the, the, the caveat I put on that is to say, if you can try this watch on, look at the shape of your wrist, determine how, it, how you think it will fit, because that's going to then determine how it will sit on your wrist. The, I own the Black Bay 58. One of the things I didn't like about it was that it didn't, come with the bracelet i was pretty annoyed in fact that it you that at that time the bracelet ones weren't readily available if you got a similar view on the bracelets or yeah i i I, i'm personally a bracelet guy um most of the watches that i that i've kept and and to be fair the watches that i probably add down the track i will more than likely stick to bracelets and once again that's a personal preference i don't really find leather that comfortable and I find NATO straps, unless once again, the watch has got a perfect fit, the watch head does tend to move around on the wrist a little bit much for my liking. So I, I, I'm personally like you, I, I like the bracelet and I like the bracelet on the, uh, on the Black Bay 58. Yeah, I think you should always, if you can, buy a watch on, on the bracelet. I think that's what, that was my one annoyance about Tudor was that at that, when the Black Bay 58 first came out, it was not easy to get it on the bracelet. Mm. So we, we've we've talked about Rolex, we've talked about Tudor. I'm really interested in you actually. I'm. I, I don't often look at Panerai, but when I do, you actually owned the model that I think is the best looking one, and it's the blue dial with the date. But Panerai of has a mixed opinions within the collection community. So was this another watch that you, you wanted to experience, and how was it owning a Absolutely. Panerai? That was a that was a birthday present to myself. That was the that was the the zero one three one three. I do remember that reference number because it was actually it came out in um it was twenty 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 um and I, and I remember that watch coming out. It came out in a blue dial and a and a white dial, and I really really liked the the sunburst blue, and I thought that was a really striking watch. I'd always wanted to own a Panerai, and I'd been tossing up between the Radiomir and the Luminor. Mm-hmm. And what and for me the the quintessential. Whilst I believe the radiomir shape is the original, is the original shape. Am I? I'm not sure if I'm correct on that. I'm sure someone will someone yeah, will correct right. in there. But I believe that that was the original shape. But there was something for me quintessentially Panerai about the Luminor Marina shape with that uh, 
with that clasp lock. And I thought that was, um, or the crown lock, sorry. And I think that was a really, it was, it, it's, look, it's a sizable watch. I'm not going to, I'm not going to deny that. You really do need to have, and it's heavy. So you really do need to have the, the, the wrist presence to be able to, um, to wear it. Um, I think it's a, it's a wonderful summer watch. Uh, it, it, wear, it actually wears really well. It looks, it looks better on the wrist, I think, once again, than, um, you know, the, than in a lot of photos. I do believe that it really does, does look, look fantastic. A lot of people that did see that watch when I was wearing it actually commented that it looks, you know, it looks fantastic in person and not necessarily one that they would have looked at, you know, in, in pictures. Once I moved that piece on because once again, I sort of found that I was gravitating more towards the smaller watches. So anything that was 42 and above, I started to move out of my move out of my collection. The only exception being my Breitling Aerospace, um, which is the which is a 43, but I, I just love that watch. I just think it's so unique. It's got so many different, you know, different functions that it's just such a it's such a unique piece to have in a collection so that hasn't gone anywhere but the Panerai I did feel that it was just just too big and just not where I wanted to um what not where I wanted to go interesting I think we should shift because you essentially bought one out of each of their ones so you've got the the three-handed pilot watch the Navitimer then you bought you had the super ocean heritage that you added and then you bought the um you bought the professional model, the Annie Digi. So interested to know about you because I think Breitling's. I, I'm I'm a big fan of Breitling, especially the Annie Digis. I I love that watch. I I really do. I bought the the Super Ocean that I bought was the limited Australia edition uh, piece, which was one of one of fifty worldwide. Um, so I was fortunate to get that. I did buy that from an authorized dealer. Um, it got released, uh, I think, January of last year, and it sold out without within about two hours. And I was fortunate to get one of those. I did keep that for, for quite a while, but it, it fell into that category of just being too big um, to where I wanted to get the collection to go. In terms of the construction, everything about that watch, it, it had a, a rose gold bezel with the, with the green ceramic insert, the Australian sporting colours of green and gold. It had rose gold indices. It was, a really, it was really quite a striking watch. But once again, I just felt that you know, at 43, 43 millimeters and it was just it was just too big and too thick for, for where I wanted the um the collection to go so I, I was able to move that on and and without once again you know I think when you start to think of one of 50 um watches they can usually come with a premium but I but I sold it to someone that I knew and I was you know more than happy to, to let that go you know at the at the price that I paid so I didn't uh didn't didn't go anywhere with that but i think it was really just something that i wanted to experience as well i do like the brightling super oceans and the avenger i suppose next we've still got a few brands that i'm really intrigued about what your opinion on is we'll go to omega next so you owned obviously we've already talked about the quartz speed masters but you owned two of the current seamaster 300s are they three i actually had the gray the blue and the black Oh well. Wow. Once again, to truly to try, you know, to see which one I think aligned most. The blue I bought because it was probably the the closest I could align to the older Seamaster. So I wanted to go from one blue watch to another blue watch and see, you know, see how they compared. I'll, I'll be completely transparent. The black I just got a good deal on, and so I couldn't I couldn't pass that up. So I really added it just to see what a black um what a black Seamaster looked like on on the wrist. And same with the grey. The grey. 
was probably the most interesting of, of the three uh, because it had that, you know, obviously that, that laserette style, which is really visible on the grey, more so than I believe on, on the others. But they, once again, it's a sizable piece, 42, 42 mil, quite thick. My reasoning for Move the Mod is probably going to sound extremely superficial, but I couldn't, the, the helium escape valve. I was going to ask you about that. I, I just couldn't in the end. I just found it was just, it was probably too too identifiable. And for me, I, I think the watches, apart from obviously the, the Super Ocean, I've, I have, oh, sorry, the um, aerospace, I have moved to watches that are probably a little bit less immediately identifiable. If I look at my OP39 and the new IWC I've just added, they're, they're, they're a little more, I suppose, generic in some ways. But I think that's, um, I didn't want something that was going to be defined. The watch is really defined by that Helion Escape valve. And for me, that was probably not something that I wanted to be, um, yeah, not wanted, not to be part of. I think the first time we chatted on face on the Facebook group after you joined was about your experience with Grand Seiko because I've I'm intrigued I'm intrigued about Grand Seiko. I'm all in on the spring drive technology. I, I'm, I want to own a watch that has spring drive technology, but at the moment, I just haven't found one that... Uh, there's a lot that I like, but not, I don't think, enough to pay the money, basically, at the moment. I think I, I'm just waiting till there's one model that really captures me. But you owned the Snowflake, and uh, you owned a Quartz version, and then the blue one, which I think does have a nickname, but I can't remember the what Sky it is. Flake. The Skyflake. Yeah. Flake. yeah. So, and, and arguably, they uh, certainly at the time, even today, are the most desirable model. Certainly, the, the Snowflake still is. So, uh, what drew you to Grand Seiko, and then what was it like to, to own one? I guess this is going to sound, and I and I hope this doesn't come across as facetious in any way. But what drew me to Grand Seiko was the hype, and I did want to actually experience the hype and see what the hype was about. Um, I won't shy away from that because I did want to know, well, there's a lot of talk about these dials, the, as you said, the spring dive movement, even the 9F, you know, quartz movement that they put in into the, a couple of their models. I think there's, there's a lot of really, really interesting tech. The dials are, they are stunning. The dials are absolutely stunning, um, both in pictures and in person. So there's certainly no shying away from that. And, but however, my, and that's what drew me to them. So in, in terms of being able to say, yes, I was able to go, let's have a look at the, let's have a look at the snowflake first. What I didn't like about the snowflake personally was the lightness. And, and until once again, you try, because it's titanium, until you obviously try that on, I found it way too light personally. That was, a, you know, I just think it was an absolutely beautiful watch. It, the movement was was stunning the watch itself is stunning it wears beautifully but i just found it way too light you you almost feel like you're not wearing a watch at all mm. once again that's a personal opinion and i really struggled with that aspect of it and i actually ended up knocking that thing against a couple of desks and once against a wall because i actually forgot i even had it on it's you do not feel that watch on your wrist at all and so i put a put a dent in this and a couple of others but it's it is a beautiful watch. Uh, the Skyflake obviously is made of steel, so it does have a little bit more more weight to it. Um, 
but to my point earlier about the leather band, that one came on a leather band, and I, yeah, I just did not find that uh, did not find that comfortable. But where I found myself after trying a few different Grand Seiko models was it's not it's not a brand for me, and I think that's probably. And I remember I was listening to a a really interesting um, podcast or a YouTube video, sorry, a little while ago, and that phrase is actually that one of the most important ones that I personally align to in terms of this watch may be for someone else this might watch may be for you I absolutely respect anyone's opinion or you know feeling or emotion towards a watch where it comes down to is is this watch right for me how does this feel for me and I think that's actually a really a really that's a really important point um, and I found that Grand Seiko just didn't align for me in terms of they're beautifully made, they're beautifully executed, but there is something a little cold and sterile that I can't seem to reconcile. And like I said, I know I'll be probably, there's a lot of people that will disagree strongly with that view. But for me personally, that was just my my experience with the brand. It's an interesting point, isn't it? And you're certainly not alone in that. I remember that Adrian at Bark and Jack, I think, owned exactly the same Quartz GMT version that you did, or perhaps it's perhaps slightly different, but certainly that model in terms of the, the colour. I think he made a very similar point as well. And it's interesting that, isn't it? Because a lot of the, a lot of times, I think as well in watch collecting, there is a, a perfection in imperfection, isn't there sometimes? And the Grand Seiko's, I'm dying to experience one, but maybe that is, maybe they're just so perfectly executed. And I think for some people, they actually like that about it. And I, I think that that's what draws a lot of people to that brand because they are, they're, they're beautifully executed. The brush, the Zeratsu polishing is absolutely stunning. You know, you look at those under a macro, they're, they're extraordinary, but there is something that just left me feeling a little bit cold and a little bit, a little bit clinical and, and you, you might be right it's almost a case of are they too well executed now on to i think probably the most fascinating part of this is we've been following your journey on the facebook group so it it, it seems to us from from the post that you went from 20 plus watches and then you pared it down to i think six in the end uh, certainly by, by the end of, of last year i believe and so it seemed like uh, almost a uh, a quick a quick change but was it did you did you uh, sell a lot of watches in like a short time period or was it like more of a more of a gradual uh no it did it happened quite quickly um and and it was one of those very strange moments and I'm, I, i'd be interested to you know <laughs> once people start listening to this i'd be interested to hear what other people's journey is as well because i actually woke up one day and i remember looking at my watch boxes and I realized that there were some watches in there that I had lusted after, wanted for a long period of time, and then I'd never worn them. And one example for me that really stood out and what this all started with was my Tintin. I had a, a Speedmaster Tintin, and I'd been a Tintin comic fan since I was a kid. Obviously, the Tintin Speedmaster came out with the, with the rocket dial, the red and the white checkerboard around the dial, and I'd wanted that watch for a long, long, long time. I was very fortunate to find, to acquire one uh, last year. And then I realized I wore it once. 
in the entire time I wore it once. And I thought, well, what, firstly, what's the point of, of doing that? Somebody else can enjoy that watch. I don't, I'm not a footer. I don't want people, I don't want to just have a watch full of things for me to look at. And that was actually the light bulb moment. I went, I want watches that I'm going to wear regularly, rotate through regularly. If, I, if they get a ding or a knock on them, it doesn't matter because I want these to be watches that I wear and I enjoy. And all of a sudden I realized I don't need to have 30 plus watches sitting in a couple of watch boxes, gathering, fundamentally gathering dust. And I thought that's not, for me, that's not what collecting is about. And once again, that's why I make that point about for somebody else, they may have a different sort of view on collecting. They may want to collect all of one brand or a series within a particular yeah. brand or a series of different brands. For me, my ultimate collection is watches that I wear regularly, watches that I can experience, that I have experiences with, and that's what it came down to. So I made that decision to, to, to go on a clean out, and I think I wanted to do it in one go for two reasons. Firstly, it's, I found it easier to, to release the emotional shackles and just yeah. go, I'm just going to move them. They're all going, and it's not about what I can get for them. I, I actually gifted a couple of them to friends. Um, I, I just moved them all out. And I thought, I'm going to just clean slate and start again. Whereas if I'd probably sold one or two and then had a break, I may have, I may still be sitting here with 20 plus watches, but I thought, no, I'm going to make that decision. I'm going to clear them out and start again. I'm of a very similar opinion to, to you on things. I real when I, when I own a watch, I really love them and enjoy them. But, I also am able to sell them without, I also can release that emotional. There's certain watches that I would never sell, but that's because I've inherited them. And they are by, they are probably the least um, valuable in monetary in terms I of agree. collection. But yeah. So we went from, I think one of the most interesting points, certainly for people that have not been following this on the Facebook group. I suppose if you're listening to this for the first time, this is the first time that people are meeting you. I suppose at this point you'd think, okay, well, Sunil sold all sold those watches, kept a few, and I'm just guessing that he just kept all of the Rolex GMTs, but that's not actually what happened. No. No, they all they all went. And once again, I was able to move all of them on, and, and I think I was able to... The good thing is, as, you, as you've said off the bat, you know, there is, a, there is a real demand for Rolex at the moment. So moving those pieces, there, it wasn't a challenge. Um, there's always going to be demand, and especially given that I wasn't looking to profit off them, I was able to move them, you know, quite quickly as well. So that was that was good, and I think it was. Um, it, it's a hard thing though to be able to then move it all and go right now. Where do I go? But that was actually the exciting thing for me. I was genuinely excited by saying, right, I've cleared out the um, I've cleared out the Rolexes, I've cleared out the Omegas, Tudors, Grand Seikers, everything is gone. And there's a, it's a really cathartic feeling to just have one or two watches. And I went back and I, the only watches I kept initially was my Rolex OP39, the Breitling Aerospace. There is one, one watch actually that isn't mentioned there, though. It is a, it's an old 1969 Benrus from the Vietnam War era. And mm -hmm. I don't wear it. Um, it's it's a 34 mil watch. I, I don't wear it because it's absolutely tiny. I don't even know if it still runs. It sits in a drawer, but um, I, I keep that. But that's probably the one sentimental watch that I keep. Um, both my parents served um, as Australian 
representatives in the Vietnam conflict. And so that watch is just really for me as a little bit of a uh, as a little bit of a reminder. So I don't wear it, it just sits in a drawer. So that's probably the one piece of sentimentality I have over, you know, uh, over these watches. But outside of that, I was I was able to say, right, let's let's make a clean break and and reassess. We've been talking about some a lot, a lot of the the higher end pieces that you owned as well, but you also you also owned like a Seiko um, Samurai mm, as well yeah. along the journey as well. So there's there's you you've got a good experience across a breadth of the watch brands as well. So so now we're in the rebuilding phase, and I did notice that you went to IWC, which it doesn't look like you don't was this the first was the iwc that you'd owned yeah this this is the first iwc i've i've wanted to own an iwc for a while and for me it came down to which which model because what i was looking for with the first watch of the new collection as it were was really something that i could wear daily to work that was relatively unobtrusive and that was just going to be a little bit of a daily wearer for want of a better term and I liked the IWC, but traditionally I've always found them to be too big. They were always in, you know, the pilots are usually 43, 42, whereas this particular model, the Mark 18, Le Petit Prince, is a 40 millimeter watch. And so for me, I thought that was the perfect, uh, perfect entry point into IWC. It's got a beautiful dial. I really, the bracelet, you were talking before about Rolex bracelets. I don't think enough is said about IWC bracelets. It really is something very, very impressive. So that's been a really great experience, sort of you know, enjoying that bracelet. And then you also added another vintage watch. You added the Omega Mark 40, which I think, uh, obviously, we're in audio here. The, the Mark 40 is one that I think, I don't know, a lot of watch collectors do know it because it's such an iconic Speedmaster, but Hodinkee kind of recreated this watch didn't they kind of re-inspired this watch but this is the original and it's there's a lot going on this is probably the one that looks the most to me like a tool that a pilot would use because it's got the little airplane on the second hand and it's it's got a lot of different colors going on which is unusual for a speedmaster i suppose if you're not used to seeing it oh i think so and what i liked about that watch was and you touched on it there was actually the uniqueness and the colors and where I've sort of found myself gravitating in terms of the types of watches that are attracting me and where I see myself moving is watches that are probably a little bit different. So I'm looking at some, you know, some watches with plum dials or watches with colors, different colors on them. And I think it's very easy to fall into a trap of having a collection of black, white, and blue fundamentally watches. Mm. And I think where I'm finding myself really gravitating to her and drawn to is if I'm going to be having a smaller collection and a more refined collection, I want it to be unique. I want it to be watches that you don't necessarily see out and about all the time, not necessarily brands that you see out and about or models that you see out and about. And so for me, that's where I'm, I'm really finding the excitement again, rather than, and you know what, having for someone having a collection of, all the Rolex models or all the Omega models, if that suits them, absolutely fine. But for me, it's starting to look at some unique watches from independent brands as well. So I'm starting to explore the independent world a little bit more 
I'm living vicariously through my wife. I'm buying her some micro brands. So I oh, get yeah. to try them. And uh, so I bought her a Laurier and I'm looking at a Farrah for her as well. So oh, I yeah. want to try some micro brands. Um, and she's she's definitely up for that. I bought her a, a Rolex Datejust for her 40th last year. But outside of that, I think she's starting to enjoy, you know, get into it as well. And I think enjoying some of these micro brands because some of them are putting out some fantastic watches and moving away from the more yeah, traditional, larger brands is where I find myself heading. Well, I think we should finish with, I don't know how difficult this question might be to answer, but you've obviously invested a lot of, a, a, an immense amount of time researching, also a, a, a large financial investment in, in some of arguably the most desirable watches in in the watch collecting community at the moment if i if i was new to, to watch collecting perhaps i'm listening to this podcast for the first time i possibly could only afford one or two or two of these models which which brand do you think as a new watch collector that you think is the best overall experience it's a, it's a, it's a really tricky question i think and once again it's 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 very hard to determine because obviously, as you know, it's, it depends on what someone is comfortable. You know, this at the end of the day, this is a luxury hobby. We're all very, very fortunate to be able to enjoy it and share in it. And I think, you know, you never want to put this hobby where you know, in a place where it's going to jeopardize, you know, your, your family, your life situation, your work situation, anything yeah. like that. So, you know, it's going to be a very, very different proportion what each person is prepared to invest but at the end of the day I, I and hopefully this doesn't a long long-winded answer but Sam I, I actually believe that sometimes we can take this hobby too seriously <laughs> and I think it is there it is there to be enjoyed and shared and it's one of the things that I love about the various podcasts the various Facebook groups and things like that you know it's it's an opportunity for for like-minded it's a niche hobby anyway there's a vast majority of people out there you know wear an apple watch or don't care about watches at all so you know we're in a niche little community as it is so my view is rather than you know bickering and squabbling over you know which watch is better or whatever it may be you know i think at every point there are great entries for people to to be able to enjoy and i mean i think you know longines is putting out some absolutely amazing watches at the moment oh, yeah you know I, I think they really are and and Mont Blanc has come out with a new diver um you know it's very easy to say the traditional path that when Omega will traditionally and always put out good quality watches as will Rolex as will Tudor but I, I think if there was one watch I, I, I'd struggle I'd struggle Sam I have to I have to confess to, to pin it down to one watch I think I would probably suggest one watch per category is where i'd probably i'd probably cheat and say that would be my answer i find myself agreeing with a lot of what, what you've been saying uh to, on the podcast today i think you're right i i would encourage people to you have to understand a little bit about value but from my point of view i love the watches that are unique and there is unique watches in each price category you mentioned mm. laurier and a few of the micro brands as well well sunil thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today if anybody wants to get in touch with you or ask you questions about these brands you, you've active on the facebook i would highly encourage everyone to join the a little plug for our facebook group as well casual watch talk facebook group search out you can ask sunil about some of these brands he's got a a great picture that you've created a sort of a, a collage of all of the all of the watches that you've owned so 
I really appreciate you joining me today. Ah, oh, thanks, thanks, Sam. Really appreciate you asking me on, and it's been fantastic. Thank you. Awesome. As always, guys, really appreciate you listening, and we'll see you next time on Casual Watch Talk. Thanks, guys. Bye.